Please be seated. For the, the preaching of God's word, I want to give a little bit of a, a prelude that when Jesus is resurrected and he appears to his disciples right after he's resurrected, it says that he taught him things, taught them things. And he goes back to the Old Testament and, and explains everything that was written about him, saying that everything in the Old Testament was pointing not just to some obscure Savior, but that God the Father had shown to his prophets the things about Christ himself. And he was explaining things about a particular person. And when Christ read the scriptures, he was reading about himself. So when we, when we turn to the prophets, and as we're going to turn here to Isaiah, we actually come to, of all, all, all the Old Testament is written about Christ, but Isaiah is, is perhaps the climax of that. If, if not maybe the one who saw Christ most clearly, he was almost certainly the one who was allowed to write about Christ the most clearly. So of all the, the Old Testament, um, we can perhaps say that Isaiah is, is the gospel of Isaiah of the Old Testament. So would you turn with me to the gospel of Isaiah, chapter 51. To give a, a bit of a context and maybe to explain why um, in the middle of Isaiah, we're going to turn for a guest preacher. Um, I, I think that we often can skip over the prophets. And we will know of Isaiah. Maybe we've read it through in a Bible reading plan. But it still is really obscure because there's a lot of imagery we don't understand. But I think it's obscure not because of, of what's written, but often because we don't slow down enough to read it carefully. That the things here are not hidden in Hebrew. They're not things that a scholar would need to explain to us, but, but God tells us that his spirit teaches us all that we need. So when, when something is obscure in a, in a book like Isaiah, the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, it's because we haven't slowed down enough to, to think it through. So as we, as we go through the sermon, I hope to, as a side point, impress upon you that, that the things in here are, are things that you can acquire on your own. The spirit will teach you and lead you and and the things that, that I'm preaching to you are not through Hebrew study or, or careful reading of, of other languages and, and all these exegesis, but it's through meditation and speaking with other saints. And I want to encourage you through this to, to read slowly the Old Testament, and God will reveal things to you. Now let me pray as, as we, as we uh, dive into this. Lord, as we come to the preaching of your word, um, we know that we do not come to, to hear the one who is speaking now. You of all people know that, that I am not worthy to preach your word, that the sermon that I would deliver would not be worthy of anyone's ears, and we don't come here to, to listen to the Reverend Greg Bilesma. We come here only to listen to the risen Christ Jesus, who is now reigning. So we pray to you that Christ would be speaking, that by the power of the Spirit, Christ would be preaching to us, that as you promise, you would bless the, the reading of your word and those who hear it, that we would be built up in Christ, and that your gospel would be driven into our hearts and proclaimed into the world. For we can do none of this without your empowering. So we pray this by the power of the Spirit and in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. So to explain where we are in Isaiah, Isaiah had the, the hard task of of preaching a nation into exile. He was told at the beginning that you were going to close their ears and, and shut their eyes. And there's not going to be any hope. They're, they are going to go into exile. 
And then once that, that destiny is, is finished, it actually takes a turn. And then in chapter 40, Isaiah is allowed to preach to a nation that will be in exile. Now this is actually quite amazing to see because if you, if you look at the kings that he preached during, they're still a hundred years out from the exile. And yet when he returned to chapter 40, Isaiah is writing to the nation in exile. So he's prophesying to a nation that's not even, they're still living in the land, but he's giving them words of comfort. And it's a, it's a beautiful section which we're going to be diving into because we're in that half of Isaiah. And it starts out, as I'm sure you're aware, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Because they're speaking to a nation that's, that's living under oppressive rule. It's a pagan nation and, and they're ruled by people who are ungodly. They're facing constant harassment. They're living away from their land and, and it looks like the pagan gods have won over their God. So in this, in this section, God's trying to communicate two things. And the first is, is his uniqueness, which is, is hard to communicate when they're governed by idolatry. So he, he blasts the idols over and over again and instead says over and over again, I am he. I'm the one. I'm the one in charge here. He points to his own uniqueness. And then it goes back and forth between that and then speaking about the hope that they'll have. And their hope is actually bound up in, in one figure. And this figure is not described as a king. He's not described as a conqueror. But God describes him as a servant. And I'm sure you've heard of the, the servant songs of Isaiah. They describe the, the, the savior of the people who will come, who will conquer all rulers over them and bring in the kingdom of God. But it's going to come in the form of a servant. And we know that that servant is, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it, when we read through Isaiah, it's, we now can retrospect and see how clear the character of God was portrayed. Now where we are jumping in is, is between the, the third song and the fourth song. In 53, it, it uh, will speak of the, perhaps the most famous of the servant songs, that he was despised and rejected by, ma- by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But in between that song, leading up to that one, we actually get an interesting dialogue. There's a back and forth. And it's going to start with with God speaking to his people at the beginning of of, uh, chapter 51. He's just spoken about the servant. And now in the beginning of chapter 51, he speaks to his people. So I want to to read this section and, and see that he's trying to awaken them. They're living in pain and oppression, and he's trying to get their attention. So he says it with with three things to grab their attention and then gives them promises. He's going to promise them comfort. He's going to promise the the preservation of the righteous. And then he's going to promise the destruction of the wicked. I'm sorry, this is a long introduction, but it'll get into then the the dialogue that we are going to enter into for the sermon. Starting in verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go forth, go out from me. And I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, 
and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations." And we see wonderful promises spoken into the exile. Wonderful promises of hope. And what is it combating? It's combating fear. That's what God is trying to communicate. Comfort in the midst of fear. Now, as a, as a father, um, as a new father, fear has been governing my life for almost five months now. Actually, before that, during, his, um, during my wife's pregnancy as well, because we lost our first child to miscarriage. So my life has been governed by fear for almost two years now, and I think all of us can recognize fear as the driving motivation in most of our lives. There are, are people who are worried about them judging us. There are, are situations we're worried might happen. If something would happen to my child, I'm just doing everything I can to prevent anything from possibly happening. But there's things we cannot control, and yet that's the situation that Isaiah would be in. So you guys, though you're not in exile, you are in spiritual exile, and this passage is, is written very closely to you. As you feel oppressed, maybe personally, or maybe at a, at a cultural level, the Lord is speaking comfort into your lives. Now let's read the passage I'm going to preach on, and we get a bit of the dialogue. Verses 9 to 11 is, is actually the response. It's someone praying back to God, and then the rest of it is God speaking back to his people. This is God's word to us. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I... I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, or the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He is bowed down. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, saying to Zion, you are my people. And that's where we'll end the reading of God's word. Where we come into it, we, we see that the great promises that God has promised, calling their attention to him, God's promised, I will give you comfort. I'm going to be present and preserve the righteous. I'm going to destroy the wicked. And yet, what we see is in the situation it's written into, in the exile, they're, they're still there. And this, this draws out a, a cry. 
And you can, you can feel the force of it. What is this, this one individual cries out for the whole nation of Israel and says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. He sees, look at the great promises. And then he sees, look at the situation we're in. So what does this bring from him? It brings a pleading prayer. And that's where I want to start off looking. How do we respond to the Lord in our fear? And we see this individual see the great promises of God and see a situation, and it brings out a a very heartfelt prayer. Now, first thing I want to see about this prayer is, is right at the beginning. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. There is such force to this prayer. This is not someone who's, who's quietly coming, saying the Lord's Prayer and then saying, Lord, if it's, if it's your will, would you think about this sort of thing? No, he's, he's there with force. He prays forcefully. He says, I, I know your promises. I know my situation. And he cries out to the Lord, awake, awake. And he commands him. These are imperatives. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, awake as in days of old. God is not, sorry, the man here is, is not timidly, speaking to God. He's crying out to God. There's, there's force behind this. But secondly, do you see that this is familiar? And by familiar, I mean this is a man who, who knows the Lord very dearly. What does he go from there? He says, Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? He he says, awake as in days of old. Now have you picked out, what is he speaking about? He's pointing back to a time of the Lord's faithfulness. What time is he speaking of? What time is this? It's the exodus. When the redeemed passed through the sea. When the Lord opened a, a, a way in the great deep. Do you see that? Now, it can be confusing because our eyes might glaze over as soon as it starts talking about Rahab. We could cut Rahab in pieces and where's the dragon? But that's because what we're supposed to see is not just what is the Lord talking about. If, he, if this man wanted to just say, well, do, weren't you there in the Exodus? Didn't you act powerfully in the Exodus? He would have just said that. But he says it with imagery because he's communicating, here's how I know you. And when he explains the Exodus back to God... He's saying, I know the way that you would tell this story. So let me help you a little bit and unfold why he's using this imagery. Now, now Rahab, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the great dragon? Rahab is a a mythological figure of Babylon. Um, It's actually throughout the Canaanite mythology. It's this great sea monster. And in in mythology, she, she was one of the creatures through which the world was created. Now, God says, yes, you're seeing some sort of truth, but you've perverted it. That's what pagans do. They take God's truth and they twist it. So God puts this and puts the name on the nation of Egypt. And he says this in chapter 30, actually. I will call you Rahab. Now, why would he put this on Egypt? Because this is a picture of what Egypt was in the Exodus. Now, who's, this is a great serpent, and it lived in the sea. Now, in, in the Jewish mindset, the sea was, was turmoil. It was all of the dark spirits had control of the sea. It was chaos and confusion. And, 
And you didn't go out there because you didn't know what was going to happen. And then who was ruling the sea? Well, well, in mythology, it was Rahab, this great serpent, which in some sense is actually getting at the truth of Eden. Who, who created the chaos? The devil, the great serpent. So God puts this on, on Egypt because who was the ruler of, of all of the evil spirits in the ancient world when God's people were in Egypt? Well, it was Egypt itself. They were known as the serpent, and their gods were the most powerful of all gods. So that's why he says, you are Rahab. Now, what is, this, what is this pointing towards? It's trying to say, you didn't just defeat a pharaoh. You didn't just defeat his army. You defeated the spirits behind him. Your plagues were not just conquering people. We're not just pulling out one nation from another nation, but they were actually making war against the spirits behind that nation. That's what this prayer is trying to communicate. No, you didn't just defeat Pharaoh. You cut Rahab in pieces. You pierced the great dragon. This was the Old Testament sign of the victory of the Lord over Satan and all sin. And then it continues. Was it not you who dried up the sea, who made the waters of the great deep? And it's pointing again. It explains that the Red Sea was parted and they were able to go through. But here it describes it with deeper language, with, with meaning underneath it. It's not just the Red Sea. It's the great deep, because that's the truth of what was going on. That sea was not just a depth of whatever the sea would have been. This isn't the Mariana Trench, but it's the sea of judgment. Because through it, Israel was judged to, to live. And they were able to walk through, and, and in it, Egypt was judged to die. And they were sent to the great deep, not of the bottom of the physical sea, but Sheol itself. These truly were the, the great deep. And then it continues on, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And we know that it's speaking of Israel. This is perhaps the most clear of them. But see how he refers to them. They're the redeemed. Now, we can think of that word like the saved, which is true, but the redeemed has a, a different connotation also. Because redeemed signifies they were purchased. They weren't just, just saved out of something. They weren't just a conquered people captives that the Lord dragged out of Egypt, but the Lord had to purchase them. Now this is something that you have to actually read into the Old Testament text and see that, oh, this was the truth of it. This wasn't just because God conquered Egypt, now he gets to pull a people out, but he had to redeem a people. And this is speaking of our gospel hope, that, that we're not just captives, but we have enslaved ourselves, that we need to be redeemed. We need to not just be saved, Christ needs to buy us. So the point of all of this, of those three images, is that this man prays with a knowledge of God. He's familiar with God. He knows the Lord that he is speaking to. So he prays forcefully, but he also prays with great knowledge and understanding. And he looks back at God's work and says, I know the kind of God that you are. And that's why he prays so forcefully. Because I know you can act and I know that you will act. And that's the third thing to see about the prayer, is that it's faithful. At the last verse, it doesn't say, and, and will you ransom? Will you bring those back? Will they return to Zion? He says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. There's certainty. With all of this pleading, he says, but I know your word will be true. Be true to your word. Now this is the heart of a pleading prayer. So as we come back to, to thinking about well, how does this reach us, 
do we pray with that sort of force? When we are in fear, when we see great promises of the Lord in Scripture, does it drive us to despair because we think, well, maybe these things aren't true, or why isn't this true? Or does this drive us to a very forceful prayer to grab onto those promises and, and, and cry to them? Do we plead with the Lord? Children, if, you're, if your dad stepped on your foot, would you just quietly tap on him or say, Lord, or sorry, Father, would you please get off my foot? Or think, well, my, my dad surely knows he's on my foot, so he'll probably get off when he wants to get off. No, you, you yell at him, Dad, you're hurting me, get off my foot. And that's what we need to do with the Lord. Why does a child say this to his, his father or her father? Because she doesn't love him, she doesn't respect him. No, because she knows that her father loves her. And that's how we need to pray to our God because he is our father. Pray to our father in our distress, in our fear. Now the beautiful thing that we see is that the Lord himself answers. In verse 12, it sums up his answer at the very beginning. I, I am he who comforts you. His message through all of this is, in your fear, don't look at your fear, but behold your God. Behold your God. Know your God and know that he will act. And then what we get is, is the Lord addressing three fears. He, he tells them, okay, look at your fear. Let me show it to you. And now behold your God and see how your God answers that. And it goes back and forth. So first, let's see how it answers the fear of man. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? And what is he pointing to about the fear of man? Now, isn't it strange that the fear of man might be the biggest fear of our lives? We are governed by this fear of what will my coworker think of me? What will my, my fellow students think of me? What if I don't wear the right clothes or, or say the right thing? And then this governs all of our thoughts and all of our efforts are put into what will people think or do based on this? The fear of man is, is pervasive in our life, but the Lord pins it down. And how does he describe it? Who are you that you were afraid of, of man who dies or the son of man who is made like grass? So if you think back to, to high school or if you think ahead to high school, if you're less than high school age, what you, what you see is, is how your life was governed by by trying to fit in. There was that, that one pair of pants that every, every guy had to be wearing. And you made the biggest effort to save up your money to buy the right pair of pants. And by the time you bought it, well, fashion had shifted. And now those weren't the cool pants anymore. And you had to go buy the new pair of pants. And you always felt like you were one step behind. And the entire time you were governed by the fear of man. But how does, how does God describe this? Why are you afraid of man who's made like grass? Look how fickle they are. Well, one week this is cool, and the next week that's cool. And, and one week this person's really popular in the news. Everything's being written about them, and then the next week they're the worst person in the world. People rise and fall, and no one's actually controlling any of this that we see. There is no man governing any of that. It's like the French Revolution where someone's in charge, and then two years later they're the one being executed. That's exactly how man works, because we're like grass, we flower one day and we wither the next. But even more, like, more than that, why are you afraid of man who dies? Have you thought of that? The, the person that you're afraid of or concerned about what they think about you, what are they going to say about 
this. In 40 years, they're going to be dead. In 40 years, they won't have anything to say about you. In 40 years, you may be dead. They won't have anything to say about you. Why do you care about man? Because they're going to die. Their opinions will only last as long as their life. So maybe you should care more about the opinions of really young people because they might last 70 years. But the point of it is, the Lord's opinion is going to last way longer than that. And that's where he goes from here. You have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. What does he point to about himself? So there's, behold, your fear. But in response to that, behold, your God. I am the one who made you. I'm the one who who spoke and created the whole world. I formed you in your mother's womb. I knit you together. And then my creation does not decay. It doesn't wither. It won't die. He laid the foundations of the earth. He stretched out the heavens. And nothing that man has ever done has been able to destroy it. We may be doing our best effort to destroy the environment, but the sky is still there and the earth is still here. And it's only going to go away when the Lord says, okay, I'm done now. You can remove it. But man won't be the one removing it. It will be the Lord himself when he appears. So when you look at man, who we're so afraid of, behold God. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who holds it all up. And nothing that he thinks or says or does has ever been changed apart from his will. Behold your God. And then it turns to the second fear, the fear of oppression. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? What does he draw out about the fear of oppression? Because we are also governed by, by worried about, well, how will they react to that? Will I get beat up? Will I be thrown in prison? Will I be uh, threatened for my views? what I believe about the Lord, and we may quiet ourselves. How will people at work respond to it, and will there be repercussions for me speaking about my faith? Oppression governs a lot of our life. But what he brings out is we fear continually because of the wrath. Wrath is something that's momentary. It's not continual. It's, It's anger. It's emotion, and it rises up, but it also falls away as quickly as it rises up. If any of you have have watched movies of, of the mafia or gangsters, the Godfather, then you, you see this, this whole city which is governed by, by mobs, by gangs, and they're all fighting for power. But how do they rule the whole city? Do they sit in every single storehouse the entire day and just wait for them to mess up and then do something? No, after a while, they'll, they'll send people through and they'll beat up certain owners, and then the whole, the whole neighborhood falls under their, their reign. Am I right? How do they govern? Well, it's wrath of a moment. They can't govern continually because they're finite. Oppression is something of a moment, but yet they govern us because we react to it continually. Our fear of them runs throughout our whole lives, even though our experience of them is just for a moment. And what the second thing that we see is... Uh, sorry. So we see the, the oppression is that this is momentary. But we also see, actually hidden in the response, is that they aren't doing anything for you. Where is the wrath of the oppressor? When God responds, he says, neither shall his bread be lacking. God is the one who provides, which means that these oppressors 
are not doing anything to provide for you. They put you in fear and they govern you through that, but they're not the one who give you bread. So God's response to oppression is, behold your God. Behold your God. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. You fear continually the oppressor, but behold your God because he will be victorious. Those who govern by oppression will not last. They will eat themselves up and someone else will take over, but God himself will be victorious. Behold your God and look on him in the face of oppression. Furthermore, he's the one who's providing for you day to day. Those people who oppress you are not feeding you day to day, but the Lord is the one who who gives you food, who gives you a job that you can sustain yourself with, who keeps your family safe, who listens to you in your prayers day by day. Behold your God because he's the one who actually cares for you. So why is your, your concerns, why are your fears governed by oppression when your God is sitting there and he's the one who's controlling all things? He's the one who will who will lead you. He's the one who will provide for you. Behold your God in the midst of your fears. And then it ends, and this one's actually interesting because he doesn't even bring up the fear, but he just addresses it. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is my name. And he addresses the the fear that actually for us is normally not even spoken. We normally don't even speak about our fear of oppression, the fear of man, but we are more aware of it. But underneath, and what controls all of those is is actually a a fear of the the spirits. As the New Testament calls it, the the spirit of the age, the powers and principalities and authorities of the world in which we look at. Those are the things that that we're actually afraid of, and they're the things that that give the rest of our fears power. Because we're, we're afraid of man because we think, what if they're right? What if their thoughts are actually true? We're afraid of man because what if the, the spirits that are governing them are actually have some sort of validity? We're afraid of oppression because we think, well, maybe the spirits of the oppressors are going to have final victory. And the Lord then turns and is so kind to us because he addresses the, the fears underneath. Just as the, the, the person who prayed, prayed for the spiritual realities underneath. Lord, you have conquered the spirit. So God says, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The, the, the sea in which Rahab lived, the sea which symbolized all of the, the spiritual chaos that they would see around them for people who lived in Babylon, governed by idolatry. They were living in the sea and the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea. Its waves roar at my command. They are only ruling in Babylon because I have let them rule there. And they're not even given voice to to speak out their fear or the fear that they arouse. Instead, God says, no, those those spirits are mine. Don't be afraid of the, the power underneath any of this because I will conquer all of those. Now, after this this glorious response to the, the fears that they faced in exile and that, that we continue to face all day, we actually are probably left wondering how. How is God going to conquer this? When is this going to happen? And for the people in exile, that's very true because even when they got this, a hundred years after this was written, they still had hundreds of years to wait. 
So when will, when will you bring your promises to reality? And I want to turn your attention to this last verse. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. This is interesting because the you shifts. This becomes a, a singular you. Before it was speaking to Israel and saying, here's how I address your fears. And then here it's speaking to, to one person. Because this is the Lord responding to the one who's praying. Saying, you are crying out for your people. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. Now who is this speaking to? I want to bring us back a couple of chapters to chapter 49. Look at verse 2. You'll see at the heading of this that this is the servant of the Lord. And in this psalm, the servant of the Lord is actually the one singing this. He's the one speaking it. At the end of verse 1, starting there, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. As a servant of the Lord speaks, he says that there are two things that the Lord has done for him. He's made my mouth like a sharp arrow, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. And in the other servant songs, you'll see those themes appear again. That the Lord, in a special way, has given his words to the servant. He will speak for God. And he's given special protection for the servant. The Lord's hand is guarding him. So then when we read here in chapter six, in verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth, you individually, in your mouth, and covered you in the shadow of my hand. This is the Lord speaking to the servant of the Lord which actually opens up this entire dialogue for us. Because this is not just Isaiah hearing a prophecy and crying back, but this is Isaiah speaking for the servant who's to come. And when we read this prayer, it's, it's actually the servant of the Lord crying this out for the people of Israel. In this beautiful section, we, we actually get a dialogue between God the Father and Christ as the servant of the Lord. And Christ here, what I want to see first is is that he intercedes for his people. Look back at the prayer and now see this as, as Christ himself crying out for his people in exile. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. Here he's, he's identifying with his people. He's not speaking as someone who's distant, who's speaking into a situation and saying, O Lord, would you help them? Would you stand in for them because they are in trouble? No, the, the servant of the Lord speaks as one of the people and says, Lord, save us. Awake, put on strength. Come down because we are oppressed. Now that is a beautiful truth in our suffering. A beautiful truth in our fear is that we don't just serve a God who's distant and removed and yet has saved us. We, save a, we serve a God who has become like us. When he intercedes for us, he intercedes as one of us. He feels our, our pain, our suffering, our fear. 
And then when he prays for us, he prays from that perspective. He doesn't pray for Smyrna Presbyterian churches, that church over there, but he prays as, as Revelation brings out, as, as one who walks among the churches. He cries out to the Lord, the Father, in prayer as someone who's sitting there in the pew with you and understands your sorrow and your concerns. That is the servant of the Lord who we worship here today. And this leads into Isaiah 53, where it's going to talk about his identification, not just with our fear, he understands us, but he identifies with our affliction, our suffering, all of the punishment for our sin, which he takes on himself. He becomes sin so that we would not be sin. This is how deep the identification of Christ is with his body. So when Paul talks about the body of Christ, that when one suffers, the all of the body feels it, that's true of one church for another, but how much more true of it is it of, of him who is the body, that Christ himself suffers when any part of his body is suffering? This is the Christ of, of which Isaiah is writing about and bringing such clarity to us. But it doesn't end with just a Christ who can sympathize. It doesn't end with just a Christ who, who understands, just a therapeutic Christ. Isaiah actually ends with, with pointing to a Christ. God ends with pointing to a Christ who will save. He is the vehicle for God's salvation. After God directs this to him and promises, I'm going to put my words in your mouth and cover you in the shadow of my hand, he then gives him the purpose. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people, this is the reason that he's equipping the servant. The purpose is to establish the heavens, to lay the foundations of the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. That is, as God has promised all of these great things, I will bring comfort to my people. I will bring righteousness to the world. I will dispel wickedness. He then points to his servant and says, I've equipped you because you are the one who's going to do this. You are crying out for your people, but you're also the one who's going to respond. You are going to establish the heavens. You are going to found the earth. You're going to bring in the new creation. But climactically, you are going to say to Zion, you are my people. More than just a new creation, the Lord is promising to Christ that you are going to redeem his people and they are going to be Christ's people. God is saying to the servant, I will bring salvation. He's saying to us, I will bring salvation. And then he points his finger and he points to the man. So the third final thing is, while he says, behold your God, he then points his finger and says, here's how you behold your God. Behold the man. Behold the man that I've equipped to show myself through. So when you encounter your fears, when you are overcome by, by oppression, by the fear of what might happen to you, by the fear of what people might think about you, or maybe you actually are afraid of, of what's going to happen around you, well, are the spirits of the age, are the rulers and principalities with which we face, are, are they going to be the ones that conquer? What will become of the church? What will become of this reality with which I, I see the world? God says, no, stop. Behold your God, but to, to behold your God, behold the man, Christ Jesus. Look at him. 
Now God spoke this to a people in exile, and he's pointing forward hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, and saying, behold the man who's going to come. He will conquer. But we see this, and we look back 2,000 years, and God is pointing to us, saying, when you are overcome by fear, behold the man. Behold the man who, who conquered everything. Behold the man who is now seated as the highest of all rulers, who is ruling over all of the spirits of the age, who will come again because he has already won. Look back at the man who hung upon a cross, but who didn't end there, but rose again. And behold the man who, who right now is seated in the heavenly places, ruling and governing, who right now, in a mysterious way, is actually the one preaching to you. Behold the man who, who governs this world because in him we see God and in God all of our fears are conquered. Let us bow before the Lord. O oh Lord, we, we bow before you and praise you because though we are often conquered by fears and though they are often the things that rule us, Lord, we, um, we can behold you You are the God who through all of it, through all of the sea being stirred up and the turmoil around us, the turmoil within us, you are still God who has established all things. The world has not been moved and your people have never been taken out of your hand. Though we may be rocked back and forth, Lord, you by your hand hold us secure and all of that is done in Christ. We pray that as as fear assails us, as our doubts and uncertainties come against us and we feel at enemies even within ourselves, Lord, would you draw our eyes to Christ and see the man who is seated in the heavenly places at your right hand, who intercedes for us daily and is ruling at all times. Oh Lord, we pray this in the name of the conquering King. Amen.